So it's drawing very near. <clears throat> well, let's take it from the top today. God has not been happy, and we have not been happy. That's just the way it's been for at least these last 30 years. What can be done about it? Can it be fixed? Let's go to Revelation 3. This is kind of from the top itself. Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner or beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Have any of you ever thrown up happily? Nah. It's always a very unhappy moment in your life when you puke. And God was pretty unhappy when he puked out the church. He couldn't handle what it was doing to his stomach. So he's not happy. Because, now here's why he did it. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We took the narrative that we were in Philadelphia from up above this and that God didn't say anything bad about Philadelphia and therefore we're okay. So we read about Philadelphia not knowing we weren't it. We were Sardis. Worldwide Church of God was Sardis. It is now dead. It's the church that died. <clears throat> there are a few names perhaps still there that God will bring out of there, but it's a dead church. And it went straight from there to all of us who were Laodicean, and anyone who's been part of the spewing, which is virtually everyone, therefore, is in this category. Now, Philadelphia is scattered throughout are those who will comprise it. And when God gathers His people together, His remnant, it will be those people who are protected from the tribulation, which is what it says about Philadelphia. The rest will not. Ninety percent of the church will not. So, because we got self-righteous and thought we were pretty special, uh, know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, if you woke up on a street corner somewhere on a cold winter night and found that you were in that condition, physically, wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, you would not be happy either. <clears throat> now, the spiritual condition that we have found ourselves in has not made us happy because of the conditions that have occurred in the church. So what does he say to do? I counsel to you, buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich. You haven't been, but you need to be. And you can take gold ore, and it isn't very pretty usually, and it doesn't amount to much until it has been heated and gotten all the corruption and dross and everything that wasn't gold 
melted out of it. It's taken away. So all this wretchedness and blindness and nakedness has to be purged away so that gold shows something worth having. God wants something worth having. And that's not what we've been. If we'd been worth having, we wouldn't have been spewed, okay? Let's just be real. And white raiment that you may be clothed, clean, pure, not sinful. And that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, how many in the church to date, since all this spewing began, have actually anointed their eyes with eye salve that they may see? Or are they still seeing the exact same things they saw 40 years ago? Nothing's changed. Still trying to do the same thing they were doing, the same way they were doing it. Because we were blind then. We couldn't see where we were going. And if you don't wise up and anoint your eyes with salve and open them and see what's going on, you're just going to continue on the same way you've been. Have we? How much have we changed? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous and repent. So he must love us, even though we frustrated him and made us, and we made him throw up. He still loves us, and he says, if you just straighten out, things will get better. Don't you usually feel better after you vomit? Yeah? Kind of helps settle your stomach a little. You spew all that bad stuff out. And then, you carefully begin to think, what should I eat now? <laughs> My stomach is empty. Whatever I had in there wasn't good for it, and I got rid of it. Now what should I put in there? And God's thinking about that. He knows what he wants in his stomach. He knows what will be satisfying to it. We'll settle it down and make it happy. Do we know what it will take for his stomach to be settled and be happy? That's the point today. We need to make his tummy happy. I stand at the door and knock. The time has come now. If any man hear my voice, open the door. I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. See, he wants to fill his stomach again. He wants to eat with us. A wedding supper with us. He wants to be happy. We want to be happy. How do we get from here to there? Go back to 2 Timothy 3 for a moment. 2 Timothy 3. He describes where we are today. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Look around today at our world and see if this pretty well describes it. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, 
no natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that is, no self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. I think that is a perfect description of our society and the world as a whole today. But speaking of those who try to look at God, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. From such turn away. We can be Christians with our lips. We can give God lip service. But if we don't recognize His power, His might, His sovereignty in the universe, His capacities, then it's empty. It means nothing. Now, we believe in God, don't we? But do we really believe that that power is there to be used? You know, deism is a form of, would you call it, religion? that recognizes that there must have been a God. They can't quite buy evolution. And most of our founding fathers were deists. They recognize that there must be somebody that created all this. But then they look around at the world, and in a sense with validity, and say, I don't see God, because the world's just like we read in Timothy. It's a mess. So, they have formulated the theory that, yeah, there was a God, and He created it, but then He kind of went away. He doesn't have anything to do with it today. And if you look at the world today, it doesn't appear that He really that much does, right? So, I see where they came up with their theory. Of course, they don't know the Scriptures, and they don't know what God's plan is, and that something is going to change. They don't believe in the power of God to do anything. We must. Because God is going to do some things. It's going to change. We've got to see the rest of the story. Now with that, I called a fast for this week, after what we read in Joel 2. And I want to go back there for a moment and uh, revisit just a little bit of it because I want us to understand what we need to be doing because we read a dire warning there that we must be uh, tried in the fire we must have on clean garments and that's not the way it is here in chapter 2 he says blow the trumpet in Zion sound an alarm things are scary when you sound an alarm, that means there is great danger. And the world is in great danger at the moment of being decimated, where only a very, very small percentage of mankind is left, even less than 10% of Israel and less than that of the world. So it's a time of great change, of great danger, and God is going to do to the world what He has already just done to the church. It will be spewed and destroyed, and most people will die. It's about to happen in the next few years. I'd say the next 
seven, eight years. It'll start even sooner than that. Let's skip down to verse 12. Considering this war description just ahead of verse 12, it says, Therefore also now, says the Eternal, Turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. So when you find that you're near the very end, and you see that God's anger has already been wreaked on the church, and it's about to be wreaked on the world, then it is time to begin to get emotional about all this. Weeping and crying requires emotion. Fasting requires an effort. Turning somewhere with all your heart that your heart does not want to go is very hard. Now, think back when you were in the romantic stage early in life and you saw somebody that you really liked of the opposite sex, I hope. It wasn't hard to turn to them with all your heart, was it? Oh, we could get so willy-nilly so fast. That's because it was something you really wanted, right? Your heart could be turned to an ice cream cone pretty fast. Turn it to God? Now, there's a different story. Because it's deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? And it minds not the things of God. In fact, it despises the things of God. Therefore, if you're going to turn to God, it's going to require an absolute effort. That's why he says, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Your heart will not turn to God in reality unless you go through this. You can have a form of godliness all day long, but deny the power of God. The power of what? Change you. Change the world. Does he have it? Is he going to do it? Do you buy into it? Do you believe it? Is it going to happen? If you don't believe it, will I find faith on the earth? Not very many people are going to believe it. That's just a fact. He says, rend your heart. Did you ever rend anything? piece of cloth, just rip it? They rend the lard out of pigs with heat to get it out. Rending is a pretty traumatic experience. Rend your heart, not your garments. Don't just rip your garments up, you know, sackcloth and ashes and rip your garments apart like they did in the Old Testament. No, it's talking about your heart. What's inside you? Turn to the eternal your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and relents Him of the evil. So we're all in the same boat, right? God's not, God hasn't been happy with anybody, frankly even those who claim to be the Philadelphians. They got spewed too. But they say, we're, we're the little piece over here of spit 
that uh, is the good one. Nah, it all smells the same. I'm sorry. I never dug through it in the toilet to see which smelled better than other pieces. It just doesn't work that way. Sorry. But remember that God can turn nothing into something. And it will be worth your effort, is what he's saying. If you will rend your heart and you'll turn with fasting and weeping and mourning to him with all your heart, he will hear you. He says it right here. He guarantees it. It will not be done in vain. It will be worth the effort. Do you believe it yet? Is it worth the effort? Let's go on down. Who knows if he will turn and relent? Then it says again in verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. This is a solemn assembly today. We are facing death and martyrdom in the tribulation very shortly unless we're drawn out and gathered to do a work for God. That's where we're headed. So it's a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Get everybody involved, in other words. The principle here is make sure everybody knows that this is a time of trouble like as has never faced the earth. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. If you got wedding plans, if you got this plan, that plan, whatever you're doing, forget about it. Okay? Focus on turning your heart to God. That is the big need. It is the issue. There is no other issue. Okay? Yes, we have to go through life. We have to have a job. We have to make a living. We have to cook breakfast. There are certain physical things that we still continue to have to do. We have to fight some kind of battle to get rid of some dissidents around here. So, that has to be done. But overall, put as much of everything as you can aside. It is not the focus of the moment. In other words, life is not going to go on as it has. It's done. It's finished. It's over. There are dynamic changes about to occur in this world and in the church. It's not going to be the same anymore. The preppers use the world, the term, the end of the world as we know it. It's a correct term. The world you know today will not exist 12 months from now. Won't be here. It'll be gone. Completely gone. I think I can safely say that. So, are we going to survive it? Are we going to thrive? Are we going to get happy? Are we going to make God happy? So He can sit down and sup with us and we all be happy. Now, here's what it's going to take, brethren. Let the priests, the ministers of the eternal, weep between the porch and the altar. From the outside, 
of the temple to the inside where God is. Go from the outside where you've been living, in other words, and get into where God is. Weep as you go. Cry out. Because you know you're not what you ought to be. And let them say, Spare your people, O Eternal. So the ministry needs to be weeping and crying out and asking God to spare His people. Because if they're not spared, they'll be destroyed in this holocaust that is upon us. And give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should not rule over, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? That's repeated several times in the prophecies. Where is their God? Well, if we don't rend our hearts and buy gold tried in the fire and become on fire for God's purposes and Him, then we will be left out and we will be a reproach and then people can say, Where was their God? They said God was going to save them. But He didn't. Now I want Him to save us. Something's got to be done. Blow the trumpet. There, it's a time of trouble. Time of Jacob's trouble is upon us. Isaiah. It's just about to break loose. Then will the Eternal be jealous for His land and pity His people. You see, we have to go through this process being described. It isn't a fun process. It's difficult. It's hard. But when we do it, then he will be jealous for his land and pity his people. And then he says he will bless us. You go on down through the rest of it, around Passover time, first month, former latter rain comes. Afterward, time of Pentecost, he'll pour out his spirit as Peter described it. He'll do it even more so here at the end than he did in Acts 2. Because that's, this is an end time prophecy. It was partially fulfilled in Acts 2. So, this is what it's going to take to make God happy. And until God gets happy, you and I aren't going to get happy. You've got to have a happy God before you have happy people. Isn't there a saying about that? If Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I've heard that all my life. If God isn't happy, nobody's happy. All right, let's see a little bit more of this in Jeremiah 29. We've been here recently, but today, as we're fasting, we're actively seeking to do what God says. I think we should review it. Jeremiah 29 says in verse 10, After 70 years, and I believe that it ended, uh, last fall, we're getting within reaching distance of all this thing coming to pass. I'll visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Promised land, Jerusalem, Zion, this area that we're living in right here today. At the end of 70 years, he's going to start bringing his people here. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. He expects us to do what he says here. And that that expectation will be fulfilled. He's positive. 
So as much anger as he's expressed to us, he's still a glass full individual. That's the way he thinks. God's not even glass half full. With him it's full. And he knows how to get it there because he's sovereign. But he tells us what we must go through for him to get us there. And it will only be with his help. You cry out to God. That's what, Jer- that's what Joel 2 was saying. Cry out to God for the help to get it done. What is a fast? It's a plea to God. You weep and you mourn before God to get Him to help you be what you should be because you'll never get there on your own. You will never be godly without the Spirit of God flowing through you fully and heavily, strongly. Then you shall call upon me and you shall go and pray to me and I will hear you. Now, he hasn't been hearing as much to this point because we've been in the process of chastening. And when you are paddling your child and he's screaming, you're not hearing the screaming. You're busy chastening. And you don't quit chastening until you hear a difference in that cry. What parent doesn't know the difference between a rebellious noise and a repentant, uh, I'm scared, I fear, I will do what you say, cry. And if you ever paddle a child, you're not done until you hear the change in tone. You can give them three quick swats and they still got that rebellious look. you got to just keep on hammering until the attitude changes. And that is all God is doing right now. That's what Revelation 3 is about. It's an attitude. Oh, we're okay. We're okay. We're we're Philadelphians. It's okay. No. He doesn't like that. It's lukewarm. Yeah, I recognize there's a God, but, you know, I, I need to watch TV tonight. No. That's not it. When he hears the rebellion and the not caring change to, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Help me. Be like you. Then he'll let up. Then he'll hear us, he says. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. That's why he says, rend your heart. And then let's look at his attitude. Verse 14, And I will be found of you, says the Eternal, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you again to this place, or the place, where I cause you to be carried away captive. He'll bring us back where we belong, to Zion and Jerusalem and the Promised Land. And he's got people scattered all over the world that he is chastening, And some of them are repenting. Some are realizing something needs to be done. And that 10% remnant he's going to gather. But they've got to go through this. Now maybe they haven't been completely through it when they arrive here. Maybe they've only started because they don't have the knowledge you have. 
They're just going to see God do some signs and wonders, and they're going to say, that's where I ought to be. And some of them will get up and come. And the rest will say, ah, that's lying signs and wonders. God isn't really doing that out there. Forget it. We'll go on preaching the gospel, or whatever they're doing. And they won't come. And they'll be left out. But they need help when they get here to be caught up to speed. Anyway, that's another subject. Now let's go to Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11. And down in verse 17. Therefore say, Ezekiel, say this to them, Thus says the eternal God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel, the, the original promised land, the small one. Not the continent, but the small one. Uh, now this is in the context, starting with the beginning of the book, really in from 4 and 5 on, where he is going to be tearing this nation apart and sending it into famine, sword, captivity. Uh... But he's going to gather his people. Just like we read in Jeremiah, when I gather you. And they shall come there, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations uh, thereof from there. Just like Second Timothy 3. All those attitudes that are in the world have to go away. The love of self and all the sins that are there. And here's what God says He'll do. I will give them one heart. That's unity. Every heart beating together. And I will put a new spirit within you. A whole new attitude. A whole new approach I'll put within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. Now what He's saying is we're human beings and we are of flesh, but we have these rock hearts. What is a heart of stone? Stones are usually fairly cold. Well, maybe not in the hot sunlight. They get pretty hot. Hot or cold, but they're always hard. Rocks are hard. And you sit on a rock very long and it gets uncomfortable. Hard-hearted. Uncompassionate, unloving, uncaring, ungiving, selfish. All those things we read. That's what a stony heart is. It can't be... Um, it can't be brought to really care and to love. Because it loves itself. So it's hardened toward others. Now we see people who are kind and gentle and charitable and so on as in society, and then we see some who are just as cold as a rock. But what he is describing here is a contrast between his total view and approach as love and man's view of selfishness which tends to be pretty stony. Uh, it's not that you don't care somebody for somebody, but you like you better. It's like the toast I heard one time. Here's to you and here's to me. 
But if by chance we should disagree, then here's to me. And that's the way people are. Me first. So he's going to take away that so that we can abide together in love. A heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, that's quoted in the New Testament as, Be ye not hearers only, but doers of the word. They'll hear my laws, and they will do them, and I will be their God. So when we turn with our heart, and we begin to do what this book tells us to do, and live this way, then God is going to get happy. It's that simple. And that difficult. It's difficult for us to get there. That's why it takes fasting and weeping and mourning and emotion and crying out to God who can give you the right kind of heart and spirit and attitude. Because by nature we don't have it. But as for them whose heart walks after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads as the eternal. If we persist in being like the size society around us, which we read about in Timothy, then God is going to destroy us. But if we will have a heart to obey Him and serve Him, and His way is the way of love, then He will preserve us, and He will be our God. Now let's go to Micah 4, where we've been many times, and let's look at this from a perspective here so we might understand a little bit more before we're done what this means. Uh, Micah 4 he's talking about the last days verse 1 which we reviewed Uh, and he's talking her about her that was crippling along her that I've driven out and her that I've afflicted in verses 6 and 7. And I will make her that halted or or limped a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong people. So here we are, limping around, blind, deaf, dumb, old, sick, whatever, barely able to function, and he's going to make a strong people out of us. And the Eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So he's going to start something that is going to last forevermore. It isn't the kingdom of God yet. It's the latter days, verse 1. The last days is what we're talking about. He's going to do this at that time. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Now, he talks about the daughters of Zion throughout the prophecies, those splinters and remnants of worldwide. Unto you shall it come, even the first dominion, The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So, God is going to pick one of those out of all of those splinters. And he says, I'm going to give you the first dominion. What's dominion? Rule. Oversight. He's going to give you the first organized, under God, leadership. And it will be a microcosm of the kingdom of God to come because He will by then have given us hearts of flesh and obedient spirits and attitudes so that we can serve Him in the way that we should as an example to the rest of the world 
who are still following Satan in their own human heart. Now, what does he tell us to do? Now, why do you cry out aloud? Why are you so unhappy? We have that expression we use for crying out loud. It isn't a happy expression. It's an oh my expression. Why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Yep. Our leader's gone. He's dead. We've scattered. Uh, For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Now, we've used this before, but I want to hone in on it today. God refers to our condition today as a woman in labor. Labor is hard work for any of you who've been through it. I haven't experienced it, but I've witnessed it. Very hard labor. Hard work. It wears you out. It can be pretty emotional. You can get angry and upset at those around you. You can get frustrated. You can scream and shout. You can wail in pain. It isn't a real pleasant experience, as mentioned all through the Scripture. So he tells us, when you find yourself in this position, be in pain and labor to bring forth. Whatever pain it takes, go through it and get the job done. O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shall you go forth out of the city and shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. There shall you be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he says, when you're in pain... You're to leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness, which we have made the effort and the sacrifice and gone through the pain of accomplishing. But we haven't been delivered yet. We're still in pain. We're still having trouble. That's what he says right here. There you shall be delivered. What are we trying to do? We're trying to deliver a child. And once you get there, it's going to happen. It doesn't say immediately, does it? I didn't see that. It says, that's where you will be delivered. You're already in pain. Bear down. Go through it. Get where you're supposed go, go into the hospital, <laughs> if, if you will. You're at home. You're in pain. And then you have to go to the midwife or the hospital or wherever you've chosen to have the baby. So he says, you were out there in this society which is all upside down, backward, and wrong. Go where you need to go in order to be delivered, and that's out in the wilderness, still in Babylon, but it's out away from the middle of it, the midst of it, as he says in in some places. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So the deliverance from the pain of childbirth and the redemption from God will be there and will be delivered from our enemies as well. Now, let's not go on with that. there's some more thoughts there that, that appertain to us, but let's go on a little more. Let's go to Isaiah 26. I'm going to go through several here fairly quickly here so we get a picture. Isaiah 26, uh, down in about 17 it is. Uh, verse 16, Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out a prayer when you chastened your chastening was upon them. 
Now, God's chastening is upon us. We read it in Revelation 3. So, here's what he says. When God is chastening us. So, that's the timing element. And that's where we are right now. Then he compares it to something. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs. Now, didn't he tell us here in Micah 4? Go through the pain, cry out, get delivered. So have we been in your sight, O Eternal. So God uses this analogy and compares us to a woman giving birth here again. Then here's our complaint, verse 18. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth flatulence. We strained and could only pass gas. That's not very good. That's all you can do. We have not worked any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. The world is still around us. It hasn't fallen yet. This is very timely. We're still in pain to be delivered. We haven't really brought forth anything. We're still here. Wondering, are we going to live till this happens? Because we're all getting old and decrepit and about to die. At least most of us. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing you that dwell in dust. It's like we're laying in the dust. He uses that in Isaiah 52. It says, rise, sit up out of the dust. We're being walked on. For your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That's kind of the way we've been. Zombies walking around. All right. What does he say next? Come, my people, enter you into your chambers and shut your doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Because God is about to come and punish the earth. So this birthing that we're in the process of is right before God destroys mankind as a whole, and He will protect those who will serve and obey Him. And they are to come out of the world and come into the area that they are to be protected in. If you don't do that, He's not going to build a little plastic bubble over you in New York somewhere. You've got to come where the protection is. And you have to bring forth something besides wind. Okay? That doesn't cut it. Giving birth to a fart is not accomplishing anything if we'll be crass about it. Now, what are we to be birthing? Let's look at a few scriptures right quick. Isaiah 13. Let's see if this is something we want to give birth to. Isaiah 13, and beginning of verse 6. Howl you, for the day of the eternal is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flame. Behold, the day of the eternal comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, 
and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. So he says, how? And the world is going to be afraid like a woman in travail. So he compares his people as a woman bringing forth a, ba a baby. And he compares the world as one about to bring forth the day of the Lord in destruction. Now let's not get confused. This isn't what we want to be bringing forth. Whatever is born to us has to be different than what we're reading right here. The world is going to bring forth misery and pain and death. That's what they will be delivered to. I want to be delivered to something different than that. Chapter 21, verse 3. Um, well, verse 2. A grievous vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the spoiler spoils. Uh, therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pains have taken hold upon me as the pains of a woman that travails. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted. Fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure has he turned into fear. Prepare the table and so on, uh, because trouble is coming. Now, I don't want to be there when that's born. When trouble is born on this earth, and it's happening very soon now, don't want to be there. Ezekiel 16. Uh, Israel brought forth. And it hasn't always been pleasant. Ezekiel 16. This whole chapter about the great heart of Israel. Again, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. This is about the sin of Israel. And saith, thus says the Eternal to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was an Hittite. And as for your nativity in the day you were born, your navel wasn't cut and you weren't washed in water, you weren't taken care of. What he's saying here is Israel brought forth the wrong thing. Wrong kind of baby. He says, you don't even look like sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You look like Amorites and Hittites to me. You look like heathen. Is that what we want to bring forth? Does God look, want to look down at us and say, oh, I see you. You look like Amorites and Hittites to me. You don't look like Abraham. That's not what we want to bring forth to the birth. God uses that analogy here again. This is, this is God's past experience with Israel bringing forth children. Children of rebellion and hate and misery and selfishness. That's all that's been brought forth by Israel through the years except for a few notable exceptions listed in Hebrews 11 and a few others that he didn't have time to mention. See what he means when he says you brought forth wind? Hosea 9. Um, here he's talking specifically of Ephraim. Hosea 9 where am I? About uh, verse 11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. 
Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them, that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw Tyre, is planted in a pleasant place. What most wonderful nation on earth, right here. But Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Anybody for abortion? That's where we are. So God says we're bringing forth the wrong thing, and when we do bring forth something, we murder it. Now there's a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. To take a baby with forceps and crush its head and dip its brains out with a spoon is a heart of stone. And that's the law of Ephraim today. Anybody can do that. And now they're moving to even do it to birth babies or just before birth. It's just getting worse. Is that what we're to bring forth? I won't go to Hosea 1. Well, maybe I will. We're close. Hosea 1. Here he tells uh, Hosea to go out and marry a harlot and to have children with her. Why? Because children and the birthing process, the conception, the whole thing, is something about life. Birthing gives new life, right? Well, what kind of new life is it going to be? Is it going to be a good one, or is it going to be a bad one? And that's what this is about. He's saying, I want you to bring forth these children, and I'm going to have them named, God will sow, God is not your God, uh, Lo-Rami and Lo-Hurami and all those, I won't take time to go through it. I will have no more mercy, La-Ruhama. I will have no mercy. So he's saying, these children are being born as a type of the sin that my people are living. And it's not going to be a pleasant thing. It's not a good sign. It's a bad sign. Verse 5 of chapter 2. For their mother has played the harlot, and she that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So he says, this isn't the right kind of mother, and she's bringing forth the wrong kind of thing. So we need to define here. When God says, be in pain and labor and bring forth, we need to know what he wants us to bring forth. Because we're seeing a lot of scriptures here that show that you can bring forth the wrong thing. Let's see just two more. Isaiah 33. Then we'll get a little more positive, but we, we need to see what the world is bringing forth and what's being born uh, to the world. Isaiah 33, uh, verse 11. You shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble, your breath is fire shall devour you. So, you conceive the wrong thing, and then you give birth to chaff, or to stubble. Well, the crop's been harvested. <laughs> you know, the, the, the stuff that you eat was up at the top of the plant, and it's gone. And all that's left is the stalk at the bottom, which isn't really edible. That's not what we want to bring forth. No. No, we want something that's worth eating. God wants something that's worth eating. Remember what He said? Come and sit and sup with Me. 
will have something worth eating that I'm not going to puke up. Is what he's after. That's what this is all about. Chapter 59. Isaiah 59. Uh, here I want verse 4. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. Here we're reading the same thing we did in Timothy about our society. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrous eggs. Birth, hatch, about the same thing. Iniquity. Now, we don't want to give birth to iniquity, do we? No. That's not what God has us here to do. That we do readily. That we do easily. That's what comes naturally. You don't have to rend your heart to commit iniquity. It's as easy as falling off a log. Sin? Oh, I can sin. I got no problem with that. Can't you? In fact, I get it's, it's hard not to. Sin is so easy to do. Selfishness, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy. Everybody does it. It's easy. It's the easy way to go. Now, if we're going to show integrity and honesty and truth and giving and loving and kindness and worship God above everything else, including self, that comes pretty hard. So when he says, be in pain and labor and bring forth, that pain needs to be worth something. Because sin comes easy. There are fairly easy births. That comes easy. But it doesn't get you anything but chastening and suffering and death from God. And that's all the world has brought forth. Satan's system has given birth to evil. That's all. Evil. The whole society is as it was in the days of Noah. Evil continually. Everywhere you look. Every new wonderful device that they make gets turned to evil. Yeah, it's nice to get on a cell phone and be able to talk to somebody you love just like that anywhere you are almost. But it isn't nice for your kids to get on there and send pictures of their naked selves to their 14-year-old boyfriends and girlfriends. That's evil. Everything we make, we turn to evil. That's easy. Now, what are we to bring forth? Let's get into this. Isaiah 7. Let's understand what we need to bring forth. Here he tells us in Isaiah 7, here's a sign from God. We won't get into the timing details. We've been talking about that. Uh, verse 13. Here you know, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary God also? Bringing forth the wrong things, what wearies him and cause him to spew us out? Therefore, the Eternal Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, a young woman, a young church, shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Let's go on to chapter 9. He's talking here about war and all the trouble that's coming on the earth. Not talking about when, when Christ was born. Now, it applied then, too, 
but it is applying now in a time of war and the end of the age. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and his government will continue. But who does he give the first dominion to? Micah 4. One of the virgin daughters of Israel he gives first leadership to. When she goes out of the city and dwells in the wilderness and is allowed into the promised land to do what? Christ's work. God's work. To bring forth the man-child. To bring forth Christ. Well, what does that mean? How do we give birth to Christ? Let's go on. Uh, Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 1. I need to hurry. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. This is end-time prophecy. Now, God says that He formed us from the womb. He wants us to bring forth from that womb blessing and honor and glory and praise to God and to be raised as sons to Him. So, we have to produce Christ in our lives. We'll see that directly here in a minute. Uh, Let's go on to chapter 44 and verse 21. Uh, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me. I have redeemed you. Now, Micah 4 says, I'll deliver you and redeem you when you come out into this area. And he'll blot out our sin as a cloud. He says in one day in Zechariah 3. He says in the first month in Amos 2. Now, the question came up, what do you mean blot out our transgressions? Haven't our sins been being forgiven? We've been keeping the Passover. We've been asking God to forgive us. Yes, I think He's forgiven our individual sins as we've come and asked Him to forgive them. I don't think He's been totally unforgiving. So what does this mean? I'll wipe it all out in one day as a cloud so that it no longer exists. The sun's going to shine. Happy, happy. Sunshine. Not clouds. Well, there's been a cloud over us since Revelation 3 where we started this sermon. (laughs) The cloud of Laodiceanism. The cloud of chastening. The cloud of punishing and scattering and dividing. And we've seen it right here. It never stops anywhere in the church. And then suddenly it is going to stop. God is going to hear, instead of a lackadaisical, uncaring, eh, and a rebellious attitude, He's going to hear our cry turn to, Oh God, I can't take it anymore. I'm sorry. I'm going to repent. I'm going to weep. I'm going to mourn. I'm going to fast. I'm going to turn to you and rend my heart in two before your throne and repent 
Read Isaiah 51. Get emotional about it. Do it like David did it. Do it like Daniel did it in Daniel 9. Get with it. This is serious. The end of the world is upon us. We're all going to die if we don't do this. It has to be done. And He will blot out our sin when we do it. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I won't go there for sake of time, but Jeremiah says, You called me from the womb. You knew who I was. And then God says, Go do my work. And He says, Well, I'm just a child. He was still a young man. Go do my work. Well, I can't do that. I can't, I can't bring forth your work. I can't do that. I'm too young. He had his excuses. Moses did too. Well, I stutter. I, I can't do this. But God tells us we've got to do it. It has to happen. Doesn't the Bible talk about predestination to be called? That God called us, began to call us a long way back before we even had a clue that He was going to call us for His purposes. So He cares. He cares. He just doesn't like the way we've been going about it. Just like He's never liked the way Israel has gone about it throughout its history. And this book is full of it. And He's not any happier by any means with Israel today than He was back then. Western Europe, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, wherever Israelites have gone and are. He's not happy with us. It's an ungodly society wherever it is. Now, what do you mean? Give birth to Christ. Unto us a child is born. Go to Galatians 2. Here I want verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, still a flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now when he says, give birth to Christ in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, that's what he means. That Christ is to live His life in and through us. That the attitudes, the words, the deeds that Christ would do are done in us through our mind and our flesh. We have to bring forth godly attitudes, godly production, godly works. That's what we're here to do. So when he says, give birth to Christ, be in pain and be delivered, he's saying it takes work to fulfill Joel 2. To be righteous as Christ is righteous. To bring Him forth. To give birth to Christ in your life. So that He can live in you. Now when you're baptized, the old man dies. In symbolism. And the Holy Spirit conceives you to be born into His kingdom someday. That means that you have lived in such a way that Christ is born again through you into the kingdom of God. You have to become Christ-like to be there. 
He doesn't want you there unless you're Christ-like. So he has to live his life in us. And that's how we give birth to something worthwhile to him. We've been baptized a lot of us for a long time. Are we bringing forth Christ yet? That's all he's saying in Isaiah 7 is, My virgin shall conceive and bring forth Christ in her life. And then he will save her. He will take care of her. Read it more in Galatians 4, verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Where is a new baby formed? In the mother's womb. The womb of the church. The mother. He travails in birth with us. He's going through it with us as we live this life and try to produce Christ-like symptoms, fruits, accomplishments, until Christ is what people see when they look at you and me. What does God see when He looks at you and me? Well, not very long ago, puke. It's got to change. Got to change. He doesn't want to look down and see puke anymore. He wants to see Christ formed in us like a baby in the womb. And then He wants to see that born. He wants, he wants Christ's life to see life and sunshine through us. That's what he means when he says, be in pain and be delivered. And Paul puts it very plainly. How could you get more plain than what he said there in verse 19? Till Christ be formed in you. Revelation 12. You don't think this is all about the end time yet? Read this one. Revelation 12 and verse 2. Here's wonder in heaven and here's the moon under her feet the woman the church she being with child oh we've read that haven't we cried travailing in birth and pained to be delivered the church not just Old Testament Israel and there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his Head and he drew a third of the stars of heaven. Angels become demons and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. Now we've been reading about this in Isaiah and other scriptures about how we're to bring forth Christ and be delivered in that sense of Him. And he got Satan and the demons standing there watching the birth process and wanting to do what? For to devour her child as soon as it was born. When he sees Christ being developed in us, he hates it. And when he sees Christ's fruits being born, B-O-R-N-E, or born, in us, he wants to devour us, to destroy us. That's what he's there for. Zechariah 3 says he'd be standing at the right hand of Joshua to destroy him. And God will have to help. Same right here with the church. So we have to bring forth Christ, but realize that Satan is right there to try to destroy anything you do that's Christ-like. 
But she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's what we read in Isaiah 9. It's almost a quote. The end of his government will never be. And her child was caught unto to God and to his throne. We go up to Mary Christ in the wedding supper. Now, in the meantime, the woman fled into the wilderness. Didn't we read that in Micah 4 and other places? Where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there for 1260 days and then war in heaven and so on. So, where we are right now is in the uh, the birth stools. What do they call them there in Exodus? Uh, to give birth to Christ and His character in us, that He might live His life in us. And when Satan sees it, he hates it and tries to destroy any light of God on earth. And he will destroy all mankind and would destroy us first, Revelation 12. She has to flee, lest she be destroyed. Just like in Exodus. As soon as the baby was born, they grabbed it and killed it. There's a boy... Wouldn't let them bring forth. Wanted to destroy them. Egypt's sin. Egypt's Satan. Satan's waiting to destroy us the minute we bring forth. Therefore, we have to flee to the wilderness to be protected in Jerusalem and Zion and build God's temple with a wall of fire around us. Protection to do it and build Jerusalem. And they're going to hate it with a passion. And then God's going to say, Okay, you can have it. Run to Zion, people. Be there for three and a half years while the times of the Gentiles goes on, the great tribulation, I will deliver you because you have brought forth Christ. If you bring forth Christ and deliver Him, then I will deliver you. And your pain and your suffering will end. I'll be happy. You'll be happy. That's what this is all about. Philippians 2.5, I'll just quote it. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Emmanuel. Have the same mind. Aren't children, when they're born, somewhat similar usually to their parents? Don't they tend to think like their parents? And people will say, I'm getting more like my dad or I'm getting more like my mom every day. We've got to become like God. That's what we're here for. Let his mind be in you. Think like he thinks. Walk as he walked. So when it says to bring forth and deliver Christ, he's saying this is a conversion. This is a new life. This is a new approach. A new attitude. Not a stony heart anymore. A fleshly heart. This is what I'm looking for. Rend your heart. Get rid of that human, carnal, Attitude and nature that brings forth vanity, lust, greed, jealousy, envy, and all the other things that are the works of the flesh. Get rid of that heart and come to have a heart that feels, that wants to obey God and serve Him in a heart that opens up to God. That's what He wants. Isaiah 54 says, It's no longer going to be your righteousness, it's going to be my righteousness. Not self-righteousness. The fleshly heart, the kindness, the gentleness, the love, the mercy of God. And then you can live together in peace and safety and security. 
not with war and fighting and strife like you're living in right now among scorpions and briars and thorns. That will be gone. Let's go to John 3. John 3. I've just got a couple more and we're done. Let's see if this isn't brought out here. There was a man of the Pharisees named, uh, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Emmanuel by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. God with us. Emmanuel says he's going to be with us there in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And in other places. Zechariah 2. So on. And there are going to be signs and wonders and miracles done. Now, they can't be done, not the true ones, without God. Now, Satan can do signs and wonders. Did them in Egypt, didn't he? Rods turned into snakes and so on. They could do it up to a certain point. Going to be lying signs and wonders, it says in the book of Revelation, because this beast, power, and false prophet are going to be there, and Satan's going to motivate them, and Satan can do miracles. No question about it. God is going... But God there in Exodus kept doing things and they finally got to where Satan and the magicians couldn't do it anymore. God's miracles were bigger than their miracles because He is the all-sovereign God of the universe. So Nicodemus understood this principle. The man who answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? It'd be kind of hard for an adult to go back and crawl in mommy's tummy and be born again. Well, Nicodemus said, This can't be it. What are you talking about? So Emmanuel answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A new life, a new way a new way of thinking. Now, we were somewhat converted when we first learned the truth and came into the church, and it represented a conception and a new life. But you know what's happened since then? We've turned every way in the womb. We've been breached. We've been upside down. We've been back and forth. We've kicked and made Mommy uncomfortable. We haven't been a model child during this growth process preparing to be born. We've been like the world. You know what Satan wants to see come out of the womb? He wants to see somebody that looks a lot like him. That's the way daddies are. Now, he can't reproduce. He's, he's a eunuch. But, but he still would like to be a father. <laughs> and he'd like to devour his children when they're born. He wants them to be born looking like Him. Christ wants us to be born looking like Him. Or the Father. Let's go on and see that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants to, and you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So... If you're born again, as they say today in Protestantism, uh, you're still flesh, then you're not born again. Because when you're born again, you can't be seen and you'll be like the wind. 
Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? This was hard for him to grasp. Emmanuel answered and said to him, Are you a master of Israel and know not these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man has ascended to heaven. Nobody's going to heaven except he who came down. I don't care how many people they preach to heaven, they don't go there. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the stake, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he sent his Son so that the world might ultimately be saved from Satan and death and be born looking into the kingdom of God, looking like Christ, having been changed. So the change we're going through now as humans is to become like Christ so that when the resurrection comes, <coughs> we can be born of spirit and be the same as Christ. Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 15. That which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. And there's no confusing the two. You have to be born into the kingdom of God as spirit, changed and becoming immortal and eternal. So what we are doing here is a microcosm of that. We are trying to change our hearts and minds to be like Christ so that He will give us the gift of eternal life and immortality and we can be born and look a lot like Him. In fact, look just like Him. We got the chance now to look a little, maybe a lot like Him, but then we can look exactly like Him. Paul brings that out. Kind begets kind. Kind marries kind. Christ will marry a bride that is just like Him. Then He'll be happy. Live happily ever after once he has a bride that is just like him. Let's see one more. Isaiah 66. Has to do with the same thing we've been talking here. But this is right at the end of Isaiah. Let's see if this doesn't sort of summarize everything we've been talking about today. Verse 5 of 66. Uh, well, let's go up and start at the beginning. I think it would behoove us. Thus says the Eternal, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. I am sovereign. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? Well, he said he doesn't live in temples made by hands. But he comes and dwells in us. We're flesh, made by uh, a process that God performed. And temples have been built that he did live in, right? He said his glory would be there in the Ark of the Covenant, the whole thing, and in Solomon's temple. And what he means is, ultimately, whatever man does down here, and whatever you do for me, doesn't cut it. It's not enough. I already got the heavens. I got the earth as my footstool. What are you going to make for me? I'll tell you what you can make for him. You can make something that looks just like Him. 
That's what he wants. Something that looks like him. For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. But to this man will I look. I will look too. I will pay attention to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. This world does not tremble at God's word. There are very, very few people who do. And he's going to look to those that do. He that killed an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He says, unless you're close to me, unless your wife life is worth saving, killing you is no different than killing an ox or a dog. They have the same value. Nothing eternal. He that offers an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. If you don't do it in the right spirit, in the right attitude, if you have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, it means nothing. He that burns incense is as if he blessed an idol. You might as well be worshiping an idol as, as, giving, as giving lip service to me. It doesn't make any difference. You've got to do better than that. Yes, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights and their abominations. We just read that in Timothy. I also will choose their delusions and I will bring their fears upon them. You bring forth, you birth the wrong thing, this is what happens to you. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spoke, they didn't hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. They brought forth the wrong thing. It will be destroyed. So then he says, Hear the word of the Eternal. Listen up. Pay attention. Joel 2. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn with weeping and mourning. Listen to what I have to say. If my word scares you at all, listen up. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Those who truly obey will have joy and happiness, and the others who threw you to the, under the bus will be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. You birth the wrong thing, you die. You birth the right thing, you live. Now he says in verse 7, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Now he says be in pain and be delivered there in Micah 4. And he says we push and bring forth nothing but wind. Well, is that a contradiction here that says she brought forth before the pain came? <coughs> no. When this is done, it will be as if the pain was never there. Where's that scripture? It just came to mind. That after the baby is born, the woman forgets all the pain and hurt because she's holding a man-child in her arms. And the pain goes away. That's all he's saying. Yes, you were in pain. Yes, it was hard. But when it happens, it'll be as if there was no pain. That's in the past. A man-child is born. We've produced Christ. 
Christ has come and lived in us. Now He's delivered us. And the pain is gone. So it's a metaphor. Who's heard such a thing of being delivered without pain? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? It's going to happen very rapidly. Our sins will be forgiven and wiped away as a cloud in one day. Maybe Passover. Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travails, she brought forth her children. He says, as soon as, I, as soon as you bring forth, as soon as you do what I tell you to do, you're going to bring forth a man-child within 12 months before it can say, Daddy and Mommy. And the world around you is going to be destroyed. But you'll be happy. And I'm going to gather people through the summer before that occurs. And it'll be like a nation was born overnight. Now how can you how can you give birth to that many? He says, I'll give you children to replace the ones you lost in Isaiah fifty four. It'll just be like overnight, suddenly out in the desert, it blooms, it grows. A nation is produced overnight. Seven trees planted in the wilderness, and it happens. Who's heard of such a thing? For as soon as I travail, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk said. Do we believe him? We've been going through all this, brethren, for years. We've been going through it, not knowing when it would end, how it would happen. Is God going to bring us through 12, let's, to use the analogy, nine months of the baby growing and the strain and the hurt and the navel popping out and the varicose veins and the fatty, uh, what do you call them, uh, appearing on the stomach, the stretch marks. And we've been going through all this for nothing. Is God going to bring us this far and not bring forth? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? You've been going through this for nine months and then God pulls your knees together and says, Nah. Nah. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All you that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall suck, you shall be born upon her sides and dandled upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God will be happy, and we will be happy. Now let's be in pain and bring forth. And when it happens, and it shall, we won't remember the pain. We'll be so happy.